If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Oh, yes, it is time for the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. And my friends, this is the episode that I think you have all been waiting for because, oh my gosh, it's, it's freaking awesome. And you're going to see it in just a second. Just hang on. You're going to see it. Um, but before we get there, let's do some quick introductions. My name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the Jesus Un series of books, uh, dealing with very specific points of the deconstruction, reconstruction process, like penal substitution and hell, the second coming and you know, all that stuff. Uh, you can check them out on Amazon. They're available on print and Kindle and audio. I'm also the founder of the Square One Course of Community, which is uh, helping people go through deconstruction, uh, you have to go through it alone. You can go through it with a community of people uh, who are going through exactly what you're going through, and you can uh, find out information about that at bk2sq1.com. We'd love to have you over there as well. And so uh, I'm joined by my co-hosts, the amazing Derek, Matt, and Katie. Say hello. Hello, everyone. I'm Katie Valentine. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook community. I'm really excited about our guest. I'm so excited. I feel like I'm decolonizing myself. Um, listeners, if you've been listening along for the whole series, I hope you also feel like you're decolonizing and kind of shedding old weight uh, as we're exploring all these new things. So I'm, I'm just super excited and I can't wait to um, read the whole list of books by all the authors that our guest for today mentions. And I am Derek Day, the author of Deconstructing Religion and the author of the Love Minus Religion blog on Pathios.com and the host of the Forward Podcast, wherever fine podcasts are listed. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm fucking excited. This is amazing. This is one of those one-of-a-kind deals. And, and I'm just like... Damn! <laughs> yeah, it's been one of those. It's been one of those series where this is we're doing something good here. I think so. Um, before we get into that, I'll introduce myself, Matthew DiStefano, author of Heretic from the Blood of Abel, and a couple of other books. And I am just excited to get into today's episode. Keith, please, please tell our lovely listeners who we are talking to today. Well, listen, in this decolonizing series, uh, so far we have been really very blessed to, it's kind of like what I love about this series is that you don't know what you don't know. And being able to sit down with these uh, really co-hosts, Heretic of the Week, but not Heretic of the Week, it's really more full-on co-hosts of the podcast and these episodes. Um, they're really helping us to see things, or at least I'll say for myself, seeing things that um, I've been blind to, little, these blind spots that we have sometimes. And, you know, where it comes to race and gender, identity, sexuality, and things like that. And in this episode, the amazing uh, Yolanda Norton. Trust me, after this episode, you're going to want to follow her and uh, just consume everything that she does because she is an amazing woman. Uh, she uh, is a womanist. She's going to talk to us about womanism and what that is, how that's different from fem feminism. And um, and the really exciting thing, too, is that you're going to find out what all this has to do with Beyonce, because it really does. So uh, let's check that out. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, y'all. I'm uh, Yolanda, the Heretic of the Week. Nice to meet you all. Hi, Yolanda. 
Hey, everyone, you're in for such a treat. Um, we have the Reverend, soon-to-be Dr. Yolanda Norton with us. This is going to be outstanding. Yolanda, we're so glad to have you here. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background to kind of kick us off as we start talking about womanism today. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, so I am a Hebrew Bible scholar. I specialize in womanist biblical uh, interpretation, uh, teach some interesting classes like um, the Bible and Black culture and uh, Beyonce and the Hebrew Bible, which is the class that gave birth to the Beyonce Mass. Um, I'm currently a visiting professor at Moravian Theological Seminary and the founder of the Global Arts and Theology Experience, which is a womanist nonprofit that focuses on alternative forms of uh, theological education using the arts. So Yolanda just gave us about five hours worth of conversation. We could take all of those and break all of those Ooh. down into, into a whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a feeling any one of those might be why some people might call you a heretic. <laughs> yeah, I'm with it. That's fine. <laughs> well, um, should we should we jump right in? I'm wondering maybe if you can just define womanism for us to get us started, because I have a feeling that might be a new term for a lot of our listeners. Yeah, so the, the kind of short-ter version of it, you know, it's real hard if you put a, scholar, a microphone in a scholar's hand to get them to do anything really short. But the shorter version is that it is a kind of scholarly and activist lens that privileges the experiences of Black women. And it, it was really kind of brought into Black popular culture by um, Alice Walker in the late 70s when she felt like Black feminism or feminism didn't really provide a home for her because if you have to be a Black feminist, that means that like, the core of the movement hasn't made space for you. Um, and so she started talking about, you know, this expression of what it means to be womanish, which was already in Black um, Southern vernacular and kind of gave a larger definition of how Black women live in the world. And really, we see the term, unlike feminism, which is a term that you kind of see everywhere, you see womanist come out a lot in like literature and theology, uh, scholarly fields. And, and I think for those of us who are a newer generation of scholar, our hope is to really move that language and the, the tenets behind it into popular culture. So that, that brings up a really good question. The, the difference between feminists and womanists. I, I think that it'd be really good for our listeners to, to be able to break that down and delineate that. Not to mention some of our co-hosts. <laughs> yeah, you're not supposed to admit that, Keith. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Listen, I was. <laughs> you always put it on the listeners. You always put it on the listeners. Exactly. I was. I was going to play it off as if we already knew. Keith, you right. cat out of the fucking bag. I mean, we know what it is, but would you just explain it to our listeners? Yeah, man, uh, explain it to this white male. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, the big thing is feminism really, in most of its forms, has not made room for people of color, has not made room to talk about issues of class. So one of the things I like, the examples that I give my students is that, you know, when white women were trying to get the right to vote, it was just that. Even though black women were initially allies, 
it, we now know very clearly that white women abandoned black women in that movement in order to secure the right to vote for themselves. And then when there was this conversation in the feminist movement about like, we want to be able to work. There was not a subsequent or parallel conversation that said, oh, black women are already working and have been working. And as a matter of fact, they're working in our homes. And when we go to work, they're going to have to work even more. So, um, right, like there, there just is this tension that exists between the two. And so what womanism really does is give a voice to black women who have not found that, that kind of intersectional space. And it's also a way of talking about what Jacqueline Grant talks about. She says, what do you do when all the women are white and all the blacks are men, right? And so this kind of erasure of black women, um, we then find space within womanism. And so there, there might be a tendency, as, and I think probably a lot of white women do this, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there might be a tendency to, to see womanism as a subset of feminism instead of its own, yeah, instead of its own distinct phenomenon and, and discipline. I think that's absolutely right. That there is a tendency and it's absolutely wrong uh, in terms right. of reality. <laughs> and there's also the sense that like people want to say that womanism is a response to feminism. And it's, we're not responding to anything. We've found something that gives language to our own identity. Um, and so the, the priorities, the conversations are just different because we're, we have different lived experiences. Is there, is there a tendency for pushback from feminism against uh, womanism? And, and what has that been like? I think there's a tendency for fragility from feminism and that feminine, that fragility often looks like, um, a need to defend themselves, right? So there's this cut, like, uh, I co-teach this class. It's like feminist woman is biblical interpretation. And the, there's always this sense of like, well, I know some feminists got this wrong, but there's a whole subset of feminists that have gotten it right. And I'm like, I don't know, subset sounds like an exaggeration. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that there is a, a quick impulse to defend oneself rather than just say, no, this is, you're right. You're, there are things that we've missed, things that we've gotten wrong, and womanists are having a different conversation. So how about we take a Missy Elliott turn and, you know, smack down, flip it and reverse it and, and, and say that basically feminism, if you think about it, is really a subset of womanism because when the when when the womanist movement began, it began as a united front of women because one of the things that's neglected in feminism is the black contribution to feminism. So I think that it began as as a womanist movement, and 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 again, it got you know flipped and reversed and, uh, you know, so, so I think that this is like really cool because you're, you're basically, how can you say it? Uh, this is almost a reformation of a movement. Mm -hmm. I love it. I think there, I think there's some really, I, I like it. I'm happy with it. I think there's some reformation. I do think there's also some independence though. Transformation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, my, I have a question. Well, I'm, I'm just curious, Yolanda, what does Beyonce have to do with all of this? This is not an uncommon question. <laughs> the queen. What does the queen have to do with this? Everything. Yes. <laughs> Everything. Well, personally, I think anywhere we could throw Beyonce in is a good, is a good look. Thank Agreed. you. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> Thank you. 
so for my purposes, it was really just a matter of what are mechanisms that we can use to tell Black women's stories. So when I was in seminary, I was in seminary in D.C., uh, and I drove to Richmond uh, for 15 days to take a class with Katie Cannon. Um, and in her womanist ethics class, she had us read novels. And what she said was, by having a class of mixed race folks and wanting to have conversations about race and racism, we use novels because that, that ability to move into fictive space gives us more safe space to have some difficult conversations. It's easier for people to talk about folks being racist or sexist in a novel than to talk about it in their own community. So I flipped it and reversed it rather than novels because (laughs) we live in a generation of people who don't read. I wanted to move to music. And so I thought, well, I want to talk about Black women who who have created their own persona, who have their own music, who are telling their own story. And because Beyonce is a year older than me, as she, right, I grew up listening to Destiny's Child and watched her evolution and her evolution musically has provided a soundtrack to my own life. So I thought, well, I want to take that and the narratives that I find in her music and pull that into the classroom. So tell us, Tell us what a Beyonce mass is. What the Beyonce mass is. <laughs> it's, 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 it is really a pretty mundane Christian worship service. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no, don't give me that. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I'm so serious. Like, I think people expect that they're going to be like pyrotechnics and hey, we've got a little lighting tricks and some things like that. But it's, it's, it's a traditional Christian worship service except for that. We don't use gospel music and we don't use hymns. And our intention is always to talk about how God is at work in and through the lives of Black women. Um, And we don't use gospel music and we don't use hymns because what I said to my students is, if we're going to tell Black women's story in worship, you find me the gospel song or the hymn where we don't have patriarchy and racism embedded in the liner notes. And then we can use that in worship. But since we can't, let's not waste the whole semester doing that because we've got other things to do because this was the first assignment. Why don't we let Black women sing for themselves? And so we let her music be the soundtrack for Black women's story. Get rid of some hymns and throw some hers in there. That's that's exactly right. (laughs) Right. So I I just feel compelled to say, for anyone listening to what Yolanda just said, if you if you listen to what she just said in describing that service and you thought, you know, it just doesn't seem right. I mean, why would you have a whole service, you know, focused on black women? I would just say, you know what? I grew up my whole life being in services that were focused on white men. So I think there's plenty of room for what you're doing. I think that's a a, a great thing. In other words, like, we, why do we think it's so unusual? Because in other words, we, we've always had religion and religious services that were focused on one or the other. And, and definitely what you're doing is, you know, giving voice to people that don't have voices, giving attention to things that have not received attention and doing it in a really creative way. I think that's really beautiful. And, and I'll say to that point, part of what kept me going was like the black women who came up to me at the end of the service or who sent messages later, the black girls who were there, who were just so excited 
because they'd never been in any space where they were the center of the conversation. Yeah, that's great. Right? So uh, you're right. Like I've sat through many a worship service that was intended for people who didn't look like me. So this is our moment. <laughs> yes. And, and you know, one, one of the things that I love about what you're saying about it, because see, you know, I grew up in the Southern tradition of the black church. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and women were always relegated to this women's day. Yeah. Thing, right. Yeah. Yeah. Where, 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 where the, where the woman would conduct some sort of pageant, they would dress a certain way and they'd sit in a certain area, but they wouldn't occupy the pulpit. They, right. they, they speak from the podium down on the floor. And, 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 and so, this is just really awesome because it, it, it's taking that, right? And, and um, you know, we, we, we say this uh, in, in the black culture, <laughs> you know, uh, when, when somebody's talking too much, you know, uh, uh, sir, ma'am, uh, please take several seats. Several. Right? <laughs> so, so here we, we have this situation where, you know, you're, you're putting forth something that, Number one, this is this is orthodox, right? This is not something that's off the Christian plantations. Or no, let me let me rephrase that because you're not on the plantation. Let me fix that. Let me fix that. That is, let's say that is is from that is outside the the Christian traditional tower, right? Uh, or or that it's or it's actually not. And and what what you're doing now is saying, okay, we're we're going to repurpose that which we know to be orthodox, that which we know to be good, and we're going to repurpose this. And instead of telling this from a male perspective, from a white perspective, that we're going to take this from a black woman's perspective, and 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 put it out there, and 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 give an alternative worship model to consume. Yeah, and. So you'll like this as uh, being from the Black Southern tradition. We try to play with all of this stuff. So, for example, um, my whole team wears these purple shirts that say, won't she do it? If you're not from the Black Southern tradition, you Won't might miss it. <laughs> right, right? Like that, the, so the, the call and response to the Black church tradition that, like, won't he do it being God? And the congregation will say, won't he will? Well, because we want to have this like plain sight, subversive message about the feminine divine, then it's a won't she do it, right? And and that's those aren't even our shirts. Uh, there's a woman, uh, Ray Kareem, her and her business partner started selling these shirts, and I said, "Can you make those in purple?" And that will be the official gear of the Beyonce mask. So we're just we're picking up all of these messages that subvert people's expectations about what worship should be. Dope as fuck. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Hold no, on, hold on. I got something for that. There you go. Um, <laughs> so we've, we've been kind of touching on, on the reasons for this. When I was preparing for this interview, I was, I was um, don't tell my boss, but I was at work looking you up and looking up the Beyonce mask. And, and some of the critiques, it was like, uh, it's, it's kind of like the cult of Beyonce or are they going too far? And we've kind of touched on this and it's like, wait, is this cause she's a woman and she's black? Because we don't do that. We don't have these same questions with the, the kind of, um, the Hillsong, those kind of, those kind of groups. We just, oh, we just love, 
we just love those those groups and they're great but but there's this almost like worship of those kind of christian celebrities yep uh, can you touch more on that or have we pretty much covered what, the reason why why there's that pushback against you and what you're doing? No, I mean, I think that's absolutely it. Like, so one of the things, and I had no idea what this was until the Beyonce mask came out, but someone was like, oh, this reminds me of you, Tukarist. I was like, I don't yeah. know, that feels real, I, sure, that sounds real white. But it is. But nobody, people are still doing you Tukarist, right? And, and nobody has, you know, put up like all these kind of nasty messages and, and slurs all over the internet about the Eutucharist, it really does unpack something about people's racism and their sexism that there's nothing wrong with that, but something, you know, this is blasphemous. It's also the fact that like people don't read. So uh, when the mask came out, uh, somebody posted, well, a couple people posted um, information about it, articles about it. One of my former students, um, back from my, like when I was in coursework, he posts on Facebook. He's like, this is blasphemous. Whoever has done this is going to hell, blah, blah, blah. So all these other people just start attacking him, like people who know me. And he's like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are we talking about Yolanda? And they're like, whoops. And he reads it. He's like, y'all, my bad. I didn't read it. I saw the headline. Didn't get what it was about. Sorry. And I was like, that's it. Like people don't critically engage anything anymore. You see uh, a name and a headline, which Clearly, we were trying to provoke some folks in the naming of the service, but we thought people would engage. I thought people would engage, and people would just uh, lost their minds and said what they wanted to say. So mostly, I just don't care. Like, you can say whatever <laughs> you want. As long as I know that the people who are showing up are experiencing something transformative, I don't care about what anybody else says. Uh, sir, ma'am, please take several seats. All of them. Yeah. So check this out. Now, this is what I want to ask because we're, you're, you're, you have taken an icon of, of the, the contemporary culture, right? So how do we juxtapose that with, say, the Yeezy services? Ugh. No, no, no. I'm not asking you know, but, but it, it's like if you're gonna get the you're gonna get the pushback, right? I'm I'm sure there's some of some of the people that push back from that, you know, they 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 see what you're doing and immediately Beyonce becomes a trigger alert, you know, because of the easy thing. So the thing for me is though. I have my own set of opinions about Kanye, but my problem with the service is not just that he's the one attached to it. I think my, my, ugh, which I hold firm <laughs> to was in part because there have been comparisons made. Um, and I'm, and my response is always the same. This is a service that is rooted in womanist theology. There is hours and hours of, of research that goes into conducting or constructing every line of this worship service. 
This is not uh, something that was created on a whim. This is not a manifestation of somebody's mental health issues. This is like, this is, this is like, like thought-out liturgy um, from some someone who is a scholar of religion and of popular culture. And so my issue, having watched pieces of, of this service, is that I don't see any in-depth interrogation of religious studies, of theology um, in its construction. It feels like something that was created for shock value. It feels like the very thing that we are being accused of doing. Um, And even he has gotten less reproach for that than we have for the mass. Could it be because he's a man? It could be because he's a man. It could be because he's wealthy. Um, it could be because nobody's ever figured out what to do with Kanye. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, it's Kanye. And you say, well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, the Kanye mystery <laughs> continues. I, I agree. <laughs> um, so I was, I was teaching a, cl- a really, really exciting class called History and Polity. And uh, my students... My students in the class, I heard them talking in one of our breaks, and they were they said something about the Beyonce mask, and I was like, "The what?" Like I, this, it was all new to me then. And they were like, "Yeah, no, Professor Norton does this Beyonce mask." So I don't know if they were singing or if they were in. I don't. Maybe they were in your class at the same time. And I was like, "Who? What?" And I was like, "I, I have think right. to find out more about this." And then when I found out, there's dance. Um, this part of of the mask, I think, is just so stunning. Um, and I haven't seen it. So I haven't, and all this, um, it came to my awareness. I think I was living far away from where the Beyonce masses were happening and then COVID. And then, um, so waiting for the day, I'm waiting for the day to be there in person. Um, but the dance really, to me, tell me if this is right. It positions um, Black women's bodies uh, kind of front and center to have dancers as part of the worship. Or am I getting that completely wrong? So we only had dance in the very first one, not even the far, the public oh, okay, one. Okay. So what you would have heard about was the chapel service that we did at SFTS. So this that's how this unfolded, right? Like all of those students, and I know that these were, I know it's the case that probably a third of the students in your class were also were, in my right? Beyonce and the Hebrew Bible class because a lot of my students were disciples because, yeah. So, um in the initial chapel service, we had someone dance and it was about an expression of putting black people's black women's bodies in front of people. And then when we got to the public mass uh, and I started reflecting on pieces to keep and pieces not to keep, um, there were some, there were some logistical issues that made it difficult, but it was also like, now I'm not comfortable continuously putting black women's bodies on display. But scrutinizing? Was there scrutinizing happening? It wasn't necessarily scrutinizing. It just felt like, in part, one of the things that I say to people who invite us, because we get, we get lots of invitations when you come to our church, when you come to our school, and I'll say something like, what is the racial justice work that you're already doing? 
Ooh, because I'm not interested in performing my blackness right. for white people. Yeah, there you right? go. Yep. So it felt like that component became a performance oh, okay. in yeah. front of white people. It became like a novelty. Just, yeah, a novelty, like or the slave auction. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, no, I don't want it. So we've taken okay. out the dance for that reason. If if I had a controlled audience, if I had an entirely black audience, there would feel it would feel more liberative right. for a black woman to be up there. But I just I, I wasn't comfortable. Yeah, that, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And that's um, so I'll, we'll pray for the day when this problem doesn't exist. Right. Um, in this way. I'm also super curious about your use of the word mass. Yeah. Because that, that's like not something we normally find in kind of um, like definitely an evangelical or maybe black Southern um, or kind of Protestant in general uh, lingo. I wanted to find the most hoity-toity high expression of ecclesial gathering mass. Like it just doesn't get more hierarchical elite than the word mass and just slap it with this like every day like Beyonce putting the two together is part of what creates the tension for people awesome you know I want to circle back to something where you're talking about uh, you had dance in the first mass but then you took that away and 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 one of the things that this is something that's cringeworthy to me in the black church are the praise dancers. And, 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 and there's, there's this objectification of women that happens in that. I'm, I'm going to tell you guys a true story because in, in a previous life, I used to also work as a bouncer in a strip club. And so I was in a revival and one of the guys, the guy that invited me, he's another guy that he's one of the bartenders. And he says, you know, he's, he leans over to me. He said, this is better than the club and it's cheaper too. Hmm. And, 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 and at that point, you know, that, that was, that's something that stuck with me. And so I get it. You know, you, you want to, on the one hand, put the, the, uh, the black, feminine form front and center but -hmm. at the same time you want to protect it against objectification right and and so i i just wanted to to circle back that to that and tell this little story because this is something that uh the objectification of women in general and black women specifically this is something that actually happens in what we call church. I'm glad you brought that up. There's an article, I believe it's by Marcia Riggs, but it's in this womanist theological ethics reader. And the article is about the intersections of Black women in the pulpit and video hosts. So I have my students read this in the Beyonce and the Hebrew Bible class when we talk about respectability politics and Black female embodiment. Because what the the argument she's making is that like uh, video hoes, Black women who are put in these rap videos, hip hop videos are objects of uh, Black men's desires, their articulations. 
And she says it's the same way that black women are, are placed in the pulpit and in the church. They're strategically placed not to be the subject, but the object of, um, of what's happening in that institution. So there, there's good conversation about what of that kind of pornographic use of black women in the church. So, well, Yolanda, I wonder if you can maybe even help me frame this next question because I don't think I have a good, um, I don't think I have a really good grasp on it. But I'm wondering about the intersection of womanism and the kind of work that you're doing and black theology um, as a as a larger, not not a larger phenomenon, but as its own phenomenon, as its own discipline, and how those, I mean, womanism has been around long before Alice Walker coined it. Yes. Right. As a, as its own, as its own thing. Um, and then black theology emerged as its own thing. And the, you know, I'm thinking specifically with James Cone. And so I wonder if you can put those two together. Maybe, maybe don't need to be together in the way that I'm thinking of. So help me ask a better question. I think is my first question. <laughs> Again, I think all of these things, like these disciplines live alongside of each other, but the reality is that it, that as racist as the feminist movement is, is as sexist as the black theology and black liberation movements are, right? Yeah. And so, again, there's a way that black women have to etch out their own space. And we, we go back to Kimberly Crenshaw and um, Jacqueline Grant's conversations about intersectionality and what does it mean that black women keep being left at um, in this kind of interstitial space and like ignored and erased out of these movements. And so absolutely there is language in, in James Cone, there's language, uh, in Dwight Hopkins and other black theology, uh, black theologians that, that are apropos for black women. But there is a way that black women are saying we don't get to or have to choose between our womanhood and our blackness. And until both of y'all figure out how to acknowledge our presence in this space, we just go have our own conversation. Yeah. And I, yeah, I know James Cone, some of James Cone's biggest critics and critiques were his <laughs> black female students who then became their own, uh, you know, their own professors uh, as well. Right. And, 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 and let me say this, this is, this is something where I think that the black church has failed in and the, the, the church in general has failed in because there is no separation of black theology from womanist theology. There is none because the black church does not exist without the black woman. And, and I'll take that a step further at the risk of, you know, peeing in somebody's cornflakes here, is that, um, that, that basically the church in America doesn't exist without the black church, which doesn't exist without the woman. The woman is movement within the church. And, and, and so I, I think that rather than trying to extract or, or unravel this thread, if you will, that we need to be looking at this holistically as what is this, you know, relative to the whole 
of Christianity in America rather than trying to say, okay, how does this, you know, how do we extract this thread to examine it and then, and then reweave this thread back into the fabric of it and make it all make sense? I, I, I'm just, I'm just throwing something out here because this is for, for me, when I think about growing up in the church, and, and I just had a discussion with a friend of mine. I'm going to say this. Let me pour this glass of wine uh, because I got something I'm, I'm going to say here. And that's that I talked with a, a friend of mine who has been a preacher, a black preacher for, uh, he is now 54 years old. He's been, a, he's been pastoring and preaching since he was 19. Okay. And, and, and we were talking about how the mothers of the church. They are the ones that keep the church running. They are the ones that keep the church going, but they are the ones whose opinion is turned to the least when it comes to making critical business decisions. And that that this, this particular segment of the church is largely ignored by the church at large. And, and, and so, so I'm, I'm completely digging what you're saying. And, and I think that we should actually take it a step further. Let's, you know, kick this up a notch and, 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 and let's not try to, um, uh, what do you, what do you call it? Uh, extract this as a, as a phenomenon but instead see it as part of the overarching or the, the, the total tapestry of, of, of the fabric of American Christianity. And now that I've said that, I'll shut up. So what I would say in, in conjunction with that is I want, I think what I want is for people to stop, stop asking womanism to respond to these other disciplines and start making these other disciplines respond Amen. to the, to the womanist movement. A to the fucking man. So let, let's make us the core. Right. And then, and then black theology can figure out out of us where they stand or, or feminism can feminism. Yeah. Or theology or Christianity or everything. But you know, it's like, um, we, I call it the rainbow coalition at the end of every syllabus. So one of my biggest critiques of most of my colleagues is that you get, you spend 11 weeks. 11 weeks out of a 13-week semester talking about dead white men. And then you get to the last two weeks of the semester and you pull out the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, this week we want to talk about black theology, womanist theology, mujerista, Latinx, right? Like everything you can imagine in these last two weeks and you've clumped them all together rather than nuancing the conversation so that you start to understand different uh, thought processes, different evolutions of the church from the perspective of people who have already been marginalized. So I, rem I remember interviewing for a position and someone said, who are the thinkers that inform your scholarship? And I said, uh, Katie Cannon, Renita Wings, um, Marcia Riggs, and this white man looked at me and said, yeah, but who from the tradition? And my response to him was, we have very different traditions. It doesn't mean that yours is better, more astute, or more academically rigorous than mine. We just have a different tradition. 
And I think that he thought in that moment, if he thought at all, I think he thought in that moment <laughs> that I cared enough about that job that I wasn't going to smack him down for saying something so stupid to me. But it might be that he was so stupid he didn't realize how stupid his question was. I I have suspicions about that. That's yeah, probably, <laughs> that's probably it right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yolanda, I was just curious. Um, what you're doing sounds so good, and it sounds like it's. I'm sure it's something that is very affirming and encouraging and life giving in so many beautiful ways to everyone you know who who attends the Beyonce Mass. So my question is twofold. One, um, is this something that you had that other people have come to you and said, "Hey, we'd like to do one of these in our city," or, or have you considered you know saying, "Hey, you know, maybe we would expand this out because there are people." Um, you know, there are black women in many, many cities across the nation that would probably really desperately need something like this. Yeah. So we, we get inquiries on our website. Um, we've done probably about a dozen live masses pre COVID. Um, and we've done about a half dozen masses, uh, virtually since COVID started. We're super excited because so the last live mass that we had was in Washington, D.C. We were at the Kennedy Center on International Women's Day, uh, the day before they shut the Kennedy Center down. And um, on February 23rd, so almost two years later, we will do our first live mass in two years at Stanford. Um, so we are gearing up as we speak uh, to head back out. and. We're starting, uh, we're talking to people in Seattle. So we'll have that live mass in May, beginning of May. And then we'll go from there to uh, Minneapolis to the Twin Cities. So we're working with a group of black female activists um, to, to host a mass in the Twin Cities. So we're starting to, as, as the world peaks out with a hope of the end of this uh, nightmare, we're starting to have conversations about what it means to return to uh, our live worship service. Yeah, that's great. And then um, uh, I just have to ask, uh, what does Beyonce think about all this? <laughs> uh, I have I have no idea. The world <laughs> will just never know. She's um, never, I can't believe that there's been articles in, in, in the media and the press about, you know, Beyonce Mass, and she has just never even thought to go, hey, you know, check it out or contact anybody. That just seems really weird. I mean, so here's the thing. At first, you know, you live in anticipation of that moment when right. like little old me uh, who sits in the library with dead text that nobody cares about will hear from Beyonce. Um, but then I like, I thought maybe this is the gift because first of all, we all know that she controls her brand. So if she thought it was that problematic she would have shut us down a oh long yeah you would have heard from the lawyer <laughs> yeah, yeah long time ago we literally the night of the big mass in san francisco we were like any moment it's coming here it comes people are gathered we're, yeah, we're gonna get it we didn't get anything so we take that as a sign but i also think that she knows what i'm very sure of which is that if she were to engage then it does become this cult of personality. It becomes about her. And 
what we try very hard to do in the mass is not to do a hagiography of Beyonce, but to narrate the stories of Black women. So there was an article in the Catholic News Service after we did the DC Mass, and I thought this guy has figured it out. He said he walked out of the Mass and he heard two Black women having an exchange. And in the exchange, they clearly had had some disagreement and they said they quoted the lyrics to start over because we had used it in the Mass and we had used it to talk about this conversation of reconciliation. He said, in that moment, I realized she never once talked about Beyonce. And I was like, exactly, because it's not about her. Yeah, you're not yeah. worshiping idols of Beyonce, I guess. <laughs> right. right, and so, so, you know, if I got a call from Beyonce, probably the whole world would hear it in that moment. Like, that noise you hear from wherever you are in the world, that's me. The, the sky writing would begin, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Unless she has from NDA, in which case, nothing. But um, but in terms of serving the mission of what we are trying to do, it actually does good work to keep her celebrity out of this work because then people will lose focus. And so we've ever had people, you know, when we did the mass in New York, people were like, we think we can get a hold of Beyonce. And I was like, no, that's not what we want. What we want is to lift up Black women and to tell their stories and to talk about God's work in that. Now, listen, I think that the endorsement wouldn't hurt. And, and let me say this, that if you're on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, Beyonce has a thing that she does that every day she, re, she retweets someone's tweet. And she blows them up. There are people that have become verified because Beyonce retweeted their tweet. So the endorsement, I don't think, is necessarily a hurtful thing as, as long as everyone keeps it in perspective. And I think that because you're focused, and I would suspect that the other women that are involved with you in this endeavor are focused that you're not going to allow it to, to to you're not going to allow Beyonce herself to be a landing zone for this. But that's that's one thing. Now the, the second thing is that is a question: Do you get any pushback for venues? Because if you go in and say, "Hey, we're going to do a Beyonce mass," you know, do do people get their draws in a bunch over that, or are are they cool? So I'll say we've never gone searching for a place to do a mass. So every place we've done the mass, people have come to us. So we haven't had a lot of venue issues. Now, where we did have a venue issue and someone bailed on us um, was, uh, so I got invited to do the Beyonce mass in Portugal. So I should say our, our, we're headquartered in the U.S., our singers, the Black Girl Magic Ensemble, are Afro-Portuguese. So we get invited to do the Beyonce Mass in Lisbon. Um, and this would have been 2019. And they invite us, we sign a contract, and they go silent. 
And what we find out once we get on the ground is that the church where they were originally going to do the mass, when the article came out announcing that the Beyonce mass was coming to Lisbon, they got some pushback from the community and they bailed. And when the church bailed, the black woman who they had hired to be the lead vocalist, so she was going to bring her own choir because our original writer just said, we need a black female lead vocalist and then we want a, whatever the choir looks like, we, you know, whoever comes. When the church bailed, she was like, oh no, I'm not going to get any bad press on this either. She bailed. So they're ghosts, they're being quiet because they want to make sure we get on the plane, but they don't have a venue and they don't have singers. And so they have to pull everything together within the like three or four days before we arrive. So we arrive, we got a new venue, which was awesome because it was a defunct Catholic church um, that we got to take over. And, um, they had to scramble to find what they ultimately found, which was nine black female singers. And we kept seven of the nine. So yes, we have had people back out on us and uh, it worked out for the best. So when this episode goes live, now I have a really important question. Do you want us to tweet about it or not? Or should we keep it under the radar? <laughs> should we tag Beyonce? Should we tag should we Beyonce in the tweet or not? <laughs> Hey, I, I I just I just put her at in here, so you guys know. <laughs> there you go. You do whatever you feel is right. When we, as the Beyonce master, do not go uh, searching for Beyonce. So, um, yeah, tweet about it. Talk about it. it. I mean, it's it's all on the masses on social media. It's on Twitter. It's on Instagram. It's on Facebook. Carry on. Yeah. And we know Beyonce follows us. So <laughs> I mean, we had Rain Wilson on. I mean, yeah. That's going to be the moment we hear from Beyonce. So this comes out. She's going to be like, oh, I was listening to the podcast. What is this thing? Yeah, what, that's what, it. What's, what's this Beyonce mask? Yeah, we, we want to we help the Beyonce mask get its blue check on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We help others. We elevate others. That's right. We elevate uh, ourselves. That's right. right. Okay. Rising tide lifts all boats, right? You're goddamn right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Yolanda, this has been fantastic. Do you want our listeners to follow you? Where, what's your website? Do you want you want them to go there and check you out? Yeah, come on through. We are at uh, www.beyoncemask.com. Facebook, forward slash Beyonce Mask. We're on Instagram at Beyonce Mask. And we've just launched our, the larger nonprofit, the Global Arts and Theology Experience. So you can go to www.womanistgate.org and find out about the nonprofit. We're going to launch this initiative in June of this year called the Black Girl Magic Academy. So we're going to start focusing on Black girls between 13 and 17 years old, helping them understand womanist theology, Black women's history, literature, all of those things that the education system and the church have failed to teach us about ourselves. So check us out and um, yeah, come on the journey with us. All right, I'm going to say this. I'm the resident atheist here, but I'm going to support your shit. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to support the ever-living fuck out of it. <laughs> Thank you. 
this is what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Converting with Beyonce so Mass nice. right here. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. She had me at Beyonce. <laughs> Thank you, Yolanda. All right, thank you. I'll say that this is another home run of an episode. I know you're all going to agree with me. That was one of my favorites. It's hard to say which one's the favorite and pick one because I'm not going to do that. But this one was definitely, as a fan of Beyonce, it was uh, it was it was a fun one and a unique perspective. And it was one of those episodes where, without a woman like Yolanda, we might not see theology in that way, especially if we're not a woman and we're not black or we're not this and we're not that because we have our own perspective. And like you said at the, at the intro, Keith, we have our That's blind right. spots and, and someone like wait, Yolanda really helps. Wait a minute, Matt. You're not a black I was woman. Say, am I, I'm not a black woman. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> But Yolanda is, is, and, and she was super helpful to this whole decolonizing thing. So before we wrap it up, though, heretichappyhour.com is our website. Please binge our, our, our shows on there. Every episode is on heretichappyhour.com, as well as our swag, as well as our T-shirts, our hats, our pillows even, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Spend five or 10 minutes right now, heretichappyhour.com. I feel like in our Facebook group, Heresy After Hours, we're going to have a lot of Beyonce YouTubes. We're going to have some memes. Yes. Maybe we can get a tweet shout out. Yeah. And Fingers crossed. That. Yes. And it'll all happen in our free Facebook group, Heresy After Hours, that is specifically for you. It's for people who are experiencing deconstruction, would like a community, would like to have some banter, some resources, some graphics, some memes. Uh, It's all right there. So we'd love to have you join our Facebook group. Just Google Heresy After Hours or go into Facebook, type it in the search bar and apply for membership. You know, probably one of the four of us will be the ones who approve you. We would love to welcome you into the community. Most likely it's Matt, but it could be one of the other three of us as well. That's right. And um, hey, if you love this podcast, uh, of course you do. Um, You know what? We would love your support. It it means a lot to us if you would um, go over to patreon.com slash Heretic Happy Hour and become a regular supporter of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I mean, anywhere from like, what, $2, something like that, $5. Um, and on up, you'll unlock over a 100 different videos and just bonus content, bonus interviews. Uh, we have videos, we have posts, all kinds of great stuff over there. Go check it out. And you'll also get access to the private Facebook group for the Heretic Happy Hour. Uh, it's only available. That group is only available to our patrons. And um, also, if um, if you already support us, we, we need to let you know we really do appreciate it. It means so much to us. Thank you for supporting us every month. Thank you for letting us know in such a real way that you do appreciate what we do because it means a lot to us. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, here it comes. Mwah! Love you. Thank you so much. Oh. Oh, that is so satisfying. <laughs> so gratifying. A kiss from Keith. There you go. There you it's, go. It's just, it's just amazing. But listen, if you love the Heretic Happy Hour podcast and you want to really promote what we're doing here, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And I promise you that you too will be bootylicious. <laughs> Wow, uh, <laughs> yeah.